for us. says, the uh, Apostle Paul said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Isn't that a great reality? That God's grace is uh, profoundly uh, more than our, our sin and covers us when we understand it uh, properly. Well, turn with me in, in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We took a little aside to look at our uh, constitutional changes and how they spoke to marriage and uh, how they spoke to gender and those kinds of uh, questions that are, I think, very confusing currently in our culture. And uh, then we looked at the covenant for the last two Sundays, but we're going to return where we left off uh, in Hebrews chapter number 12. And if you'll turn there, we want to look together at verses 14 through 17 this morning and uh, thinking about God's grace in our broken places that we often will find that there's a need that we have to experience and encounter God's grace in our relationships. And so that's what this passage, I think, is going to help us to think about together. So there in uh, verse 14, let's do this together. Now that you're seated again, let's stand as we show reverence to God in reading from his word. Let's stand together for God's word as we read it this morning. And the scripture there says in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse number uh, 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the scripture says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring, springing up cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Father, thank you for Scripture. I pray that you'll take away distractions, give us the ability to listen, God, and to hear your uh, word. I pray that your spirit will help us, cleanse us, God, and uh, take away those uh, impediments and the things that stand in the way of our ability to hear you clearly. Help me, God. Anoint my mind. Take away my own distractions, I pray, and fill me this morning with your spirit and use your word in my own life as I speak it. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. As we think about the passage today, how it says uh, pursue peace and holiness, we know that in our uh, own lives that we don't have to go looking for conflict, do we? I mean, you don't wake up and think, you know what, I'm going to go out here today and find somebody that I can get into a verbal disagreement with and just escalate that and get it all out of control. I mean, we don't look for those kinds of things, but if you're just a human being uh, living your life, you'll find that conflict occurs. It happens. Uh, we're people. We see things differently at times. And it, there are all kinds of places that conflict occurs. Sometimes it's in your family life, right? If you're a parent, you're in conflict sometimes with your children. But if you're, if you're married, sometimes you're in conflict with your spouse. You disagree, and sometimes they'll be over significant things. Sometimes it'll be over trivial things in retrospect. Like you look back and you go, I can't believe we were fighting over that dumb thing. But we come into disagreement with each other frequently, and so the Bible holds up for us a standard 
and says, pursue peace. Peace is God's objective in our relationships. In fact, if you want to understand the gospel, the gospel says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their offenses against them. And he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. So what was God about in the gospel? What was he trying to do? He was affecting peace between himself and people who had rebelled against him. And he did that in the cross. He brought uh, his son into this world to reconcile humans to himself and to bring us into relationship with him. But then the other part of that passage says, and he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. That's a gospel-centered life, but also a peacemaking life. So disciples, what are they? Like they're us, right? People who have professed Jesus and are following Jesus are his disciples. And we think about what discipleship is. Well, one thing that we know for certain according to the scripture is it's learning how to be mature when we're not getting our way or when we're in conflict with other people and when relationships have gone sideways. Discipleship becomes meaningful in situations like that when we we think, I wish that there was peace, but there's not peace in between me and this other person. And so discipleship is very practical. It's just uh, maturity as we go through life. That's what discipleship really is. The word, of course, we've talked about before means a person who's a learner. You, we are apprenticed to, to Jesus. And Jesus himself said, when a disciple is fully mature, they'll be just like their teacher. So God's objective in Christ is to make you and me like Jesus, even in conflict. Was Jesus ever in conflict in the New Testament? Of course. It characterized basically most of his waking hours in relationship to religious people. There was conflict in Jesus' own life. And he modeled for us often how a person was to behave. Well, always in his reactions to his opponents and to people that he was in uh, adversarial kind of relationships with. So what I'm trying to say is that conflict, even though we don't desire it and the only people that seek it out are sick animals, right? If you go around looking to pick fights with people, you're, you're sick. You know? so, but the, the fact that it occurs means that uh, there's a purpose God has for it that can be redemptive, you know, re- redeeming. I, I love how Michael Card, uh, the, probably the earliest Christian recording artist that I found that I really loved was Michael Card. And he, he said, he talked about the fact that God's name is Redeemer. He says his name is Redeemer and he doesn't waste anything. Aren't you glad God doesn't waste the hardship in our life? He has a purpose in it. There's a meaning behind even the difficult things that occur in our life like conflict. I used to do ride-alongs in my old um, ministry assignment and I would go sometimes to churches with others who were expert in conflict resolution. Sometimes you would find in whole communities of churches that issues had become so divisive that they just said, this is beyond our capacity to deal with anymore. And they would uh, seek outside help. I went with this guy named Marty, probably one of the strongest uh, men of prayer that I knew, Marty Youngblood. And uh, calm, he knew just what to do and say 
when you went into situations, if you get outside help, it's almost always too far gone to, to get a mediator and to get uh, progress. And so sometimes you're just trying to put a, a tourniquet on really bad situations. But, you know, I rode along with Marty into situations of conflict. And you can just see that sometimes uh, we don't get that learning how to love people even when this, the relationships that with, we're in with them are messy is an aspect of discipleship. We better get it because if we don't, we can find that whole congregations can be negatively uh, disrupted and we lose our ability to focus on the most important things. And so here the scripture says to us, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And, and then it goes on and talks about some other aspects of that. But the first part of this that we see in verse 14 is that grace heals broken lives. The only thing that heals brokenness in human lives is God's grace in Jesus. And so to pursue peace, that means uh, pursue peace, but except with that person you don't really like, right? You're off the hook there. No, I mean, especially with that person that you're like, if, I, if you were to sit quietly for a couple of minutes today, it might come to mind to you pretty easily, someone that right now you've got unresolved things with, open-ended conflict with. And maybe that's especially the person that God might have in mind for us in our discipleship pathway. He might say, that is something that you, if you, if you don't fix it, it's problematic to your heart. It's, it's an issue with your own heart. And so peace is something that we act, actively engage in for righteousness' sake because God cares about righteousness. Righteousness is, just, righteousness is an upright world. You remember how the, the disciples, when they traveled and preached, that they went to this one place and the people there said, the people that have turned the world upside down have come here too. But they didn't understand what they were doing to be turning the world upside down. They understood it to be right-siding the world, to turn it the right way. They were pursuing righteousness. And so our, uh, the way that we are as peacemakers in relationships with others is an aspect of how we actively engage uh, those that we know for the sake of righteousness. What happens in our lives when we just let conflict fester? We leave it alone. Here, here's what most of us do in our life when things get difficult, or often we do this. We, we sweep it under the rug, right? Because we sweep it under the rug, eventually it just gets better when we leave it there. It doesn't ferment and stink and get worse. It gets better because we ignored it, right? No, that's not how it works at all. We know that when we ignore conflict, we don't seek to resolve it, it gets worse. It doesn't dissipate. We wish it would. We wish we could ignore it and it would just go away, but that, that's really not how it happens. Does it affect us when we ignore conflict in our life, when it's open-ended and we've got hard stuff with people that there's no peace in it? Yeah, of course it does. It affects us in our, in our own physical body sometimes. We feel agitation. The word disease, you ever think about words? Like think about the word disease, it's dis-ease. I don't have any ease in me. There's no peace. Disease, that's the idea. Is 
what happens when we think, I'm just going to let this percolate. And That's why the Bible says here, pursue peace. Actively look for peace in your relationships with other humans. Pursue it. When I pursue peace, I remember that I don't have control over anyone else. Isn't that a disappointing reality? The older you get, you're like, I don't have control over other people all this time. Like parents, you're in for a rude awakening one day. Because you got these little people that you can guide and control. And one day they start talking back. What? I thought that I was in control of all this. But no, you find out later on that that person is their own agent with their own capacity to think and to act. And the reality is you cannot control anyone else. You need to give that up. Good idea to go ahead and come to a a realization of that and stop it if you're trying to control other people. The only person that you can control is you, you, nobody else. That's a tough truth, isn't it? And that's hard to accept. But that, that's the reality. The Bible says, I can only control me. I don't always do a good job at that either, sadly. But peacemaking efforts are what the Bible says is incumbent on us. And we're in Hebrews chapter number 12, and we're looking at verses 14 through 17. When I pursue peace, I acknowledge I don't have control over others And my peacemaking efforts may not be reciprocated. I may reach out to a person and do the best that I know how to. And they may still want to be angry. And sometimes the things we do make it hard for people to say, accept our apologies, right? Sometimes the things that people do are abusive and egregious and it's like it's hard for them. And sometimes we need to be patient with people when we're trying to make peace. We're trying to make peace. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is be patient. Try. Pursue peace. Put ourselves out there. But maybe uh, accept that the thing that happened to them was very hurtful. And, and to be mindful of the fact that they may have to sit with their hurt a little bit. And the best that we can do is to try, try to be agents of peace. To attempt to make peace with other people. I think about being married, because I have been for 35 years, going on 36, right? 36 years this year in September. And it's like the Bible says, it doesn't say this only to married people. It says it to everybody, but it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. It says, first thing it says, be angry, but don't sin. Neither let the sun go down on your wrath wrath or give place to the devil in other words what it's saying to people is you are very smart if you reconcile with others when uh, conflict happens quickly do it quickly don't let it fester because what we are doing is giving satan the an opportunity to work in our relationship and so i've had you know just being honest one or two very restless nights where i was so prideful and full of myself and thought i was right but uh, I didn't sleep well. The Bible says what you've got to learn to do is to resolve conflict quickly because Satan loves it when we nurse our resentments and stockpile our grievances. He loves that. 
when you nurse your resentments and you stockpile your grievances and you just sit in that stuff. Why? Because it turns into malice. It turns into hatefulness. He loves it when you're like that, when I'm like that, when I'm exhibiting hatred. And so the Bible says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Well, what is holiness? Holiness is the otherness that is only true of the triune God. Does that clarify it for you? No. A little bit. Otherness. In other words, God is so uniquely different than us, that's why he's God. He's holy. And the the Bible says, pursue holiness. So, in other words, that's discipleship again. We're trying to be God-like in our ways. We want to be like God. Of course, we're, the fact is that we're, we come short of God's glory. But holiness is his otherness. It's what, when the Bible describes God, it says he is sinless. God doesn't sin. He can't be tempted to sin, and God does not sin. God is pure morally. There is no darkness in God. God is light. There's no darkness in him whatsoever. These are the ways that the Bible tries to explain to us what God is like in his holiness. Holiness is purity in God. It's his goodness. God is good. There's nothing about God that's not good. Everything about God is good. If we think about God and what comes to mind for us is something other than good, we have the wrong God because God is good. What his goodness looks like toward us sometimes is severe, just like our best uh, goodness towards our children sometimes may for them seem severe. That's what we just looked at in Hebrews, how the Bible says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. And if we're without discipline, of which all are partakers, then we're illegitimate and not sons. God loves us too much not to uh, shape us into his own image. And God is holy, the Bible says. He abides in irreproachable light. Wow, that's what God is like. He is completely different than all of us. And yet he loves us. And he made a way for us to be holy too. How about that? God made a way for you to be holy. How does that happen? Well, the Bible says you are made holy through Christ's imputed righteousness. That's how it says it. What does that mean? That righteousness is a gift that God gives because Jesus died in your place. So God looks at me. And he calls me a saint, even though I'm like, what? How could that be? And you probably feel the same way about yourself sometimes. Me, a saint? God says you're a holy one. How could that be? Because Jesus gives you his righteousness as a free gift. The only sinless person took the place of all the sinful people, and he took our judgment and our wrath, and he was punished in our place, and he died the only, sin, the only person that came to this earth that never sinned, all the sinful people, put on a cross. And he, and he was executed. And the Bible says God's cosmic justice was satisfied in Jesus' righteousness. His substitutionary death for us. Him taking our place and willingly receiving our judgment. The judgment that was rightfully directed at me 
he took on himself and he was punished for me. And then the Bible says he rose from the dead as, a, as, the, as the Bible shows justification happened because Jesus was resurrected. He's resurrected and he lives. And so what he gives us, imputed means it's a gift God gives to us. Grace, goodness from God is the fact that we get to be viewed by God as holy. He sees us not as we see ourselves, but the way that through Christ he's able to understand us is that cleansed. That's how he sees you. We're cleansed. But holiness is is practical too. We're made holy through his righteousness imputed. But also the Bible says in 1 Peter, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy. Aspire to holiness. Pursue holiness. That's what the text says here. We're holy through... Uh, as we separate ourselves in our love and devotion to Christ, that's what holiness looks like on a, a practical level in the life of a fallen human. I, I separate myself to the one that loves me and devoted himself to me. I devote myself to him. That's what holiness is. It's this pursuit of the one who's holy. He's sinless, I'm not, so it's imperfect in my life. But Christ cleanses us again and again. And our, our, we're holy through repentance and being repentant. Not through a perfect life. Again, like I always think, we know ourselves, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we lose it over and over again every day. We're not perfect people. But we can be repentant people. That is mindful that when I'm out of step and out of alignment with God, where I want to be is in alignment with God. God shows me his will in his word, and so I constantly am adjusting my life to what God wants. Penitence, repentance. That's what it means to be a Christian, is you're a person who is committed from the time that you say yes to Jesus for the remainder of your life to repenting. We're repenting people. When we get it wrong, we say, I'm wrong. Sometimes we have to say it to others too, which is what we're talking about in this passage. But we certainly have to say it to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's good news, right? What is confession? In Scripture, it means I say the same thing about my offense that God would say about it. God says, your offense is an offense. It's not holy. It's not righteous when we don't obey God's revealed will, and he has revealed his will. So when I don't obey it, and I, he'll make me conscious of that because the Holy Spirit lives where? In us. Saturates our mind and thoughts. And so I know when I haven't obeyed God, he says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of unrighteousness. So personal holiness looks like constantly repenting. It's an aspect of my continual pursuit of God imperfectly in my flesh, and yet I strive and aspire to it, being holy because he's holy. By his word which sanctifies us, Jesus said to his disciples, or he prayed in a, uh, what people call a high priestly prayer. He prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We're made holy by God's word. That's why we have to know it. That's why studying scripture, reading the Bible, knowing it, 
It's not, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you must be devoted to the Bible. Not as God, the Bible's not God, but it shows us God. And so a disciple is a person who puts their nose in the book. And it's helpful to have good teachers, but you need to let the Holy Spirit teach you what the Bible says. Put your nose in that book and know what it says and read it and pray over it and pray through it. So Jesus says he'll sanctify us by his word, which is truth. When we have appropriate reverence for God, the fear of the Lord, uh, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, which is proper reverence. Uh, We talked about God's otherness. Well, reverence means I acknowledge that otherness of God. I'm like, there, that's why we sing the, in these praise songs, there's no one like you. There's nobody like you. You alone are worthy of our worship. So reverence is me admitting what's obviously true. It is that there's a creator, and, and I'm not him. I'm limited, finite, created by the one that made me to love him and worship him. Holiness, when we think about how, how do we obey this scripture that says pursue peace with all people and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, how do we do that? When we care enough about God's reputation that we live accordingly. We care about God's reputation. I am a reflection of God. People look at me and they want to know that God is real because I say he is. So they look at us and they and they wonder, don't they? Is God real based on you on you, on your testimony? Is he real to you? You remember King David sinned uh egregious sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He sent her husband out into war and put him in a vulnerable place and he was killed in battle. Terrible, terrible things that David did. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him about it. And when he, he tells him the story that a, a man had a little ewe lamb that he treated like a pet. And he said his rich neighbor had some company come and he took that man's little lamb that he treated like a pet and he fed it to his company. You remember how David reacted to that? He's like, that man's deserving of death. Remember what Nathan said to David? He's like, you're that man. You are the man. You did that. You did that through Bathsheba to her husband, Uriah. He confronts him with his his sin. And this is what Nathan said. By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He says, you didn't esteem God's reputation. You didn't think about when you were doing that what it meant for people who needed to see God as different through you. He says, you didn't see that. And of course, we get the 32nd and the 51st Psalms as David's repentance, his penitent, those those Psalms where he confesses his, his sin. Understanding holiness allows us to understand true beauty. What is beauty? Well, it's God's holiness in in practical ways and lives of people holiness allows our lives to be safeguarded from self-defeating behavior like david's behavior if we care about holiness we we won't want our life to be identified with 
behavior that is dishonoring to, to God in his otherness. And the scripture says, without it, we won't see the Lord. So it, with it, what happens? We see the Lord, right? With holiness in our life and pursuing it, we see the Lord. We want to see God, right? That's what we want. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We are empowered when we pursue holiness to travel through life knowing what God is doing. Do you want to know what God is doing in your life? Of course you do. If you want to know what God is doing, the Bible says then pursue holiness because those who pursue holiness see the Lord. We know what God's up to in the world. We know what God's up to in our life. And that's difficult, not always the easy thing. But we also see in this passage that not only does grace heal us, broken people, it helps toxic cultures. Like the the culture is the realities of what life is like in groups of people. And so we see in this passage it says, it gives us another aspect of this as a warning, looking diligent lest, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. That's culture. It's people around us being affected by bitterness. Which, what is bitterness? Bitterness is when unforgiveness, when we don't pursue peace with people, when we let it fester, that's how all this is tied together, then it says it can affect whole groups of people, family systems, congregations. So how could someone fall short of the grace of God? That's the Really, when we've read and studied Hebrews, what you see is from beginning to end, that's a recurring warning. It says you don't want to fall short of God's grace. You don't want grace not to become the thing that you laid hold of. You want grace to become your personal reality. And yet there were people who knew all of the vocabulary of faith. That's what you see in the very beginning. They knew the vocabulary of faith. They knew they they could go play the church game, but their life had not been transformed by grace. He says you can hang around spiritual community and be in places where what should happen is that you turn into a disciple and a person who's pursuing God and not do that. You don't end up doing that. You don't experience and encounter the grace of God. And so he says this is the warning. Don't be careful that you don't fall short of the grace of God. F.F. Bruce, a great Christian thinker, says that grace sets people people's feet at the pathway of faith for by grace you are saved through faith that not of yourselves it is a gift of God and not of work so that no one can boast so he says grace puts your feet on the pathway of faith it's the beginning place the goodness of God the free gift that God offers us in Christ that we say yes to you got to say yes to it we have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and surrender Yield, let him in. And then we're on the pathway of grace and we're living a life of of faith. But familiarity with spiritual concepts is not the same as being transformed by grace. They're not the same thing. You can, 
Like I, as a kid, my, I've probably told you my granddaddy was a preacher. So, and my parents, you hear people say they had dr- a drug problem, like you got drugged to church all the time. That was, you know, we, were, we had a drug problem. We got drugged to church. But, you know, I was baptized as a little kid with my cousin in a pond in Twin City, Georgia, where we were growing up. Guess what? My life didn't change. It was not meaningful. As a 24-year-old person, I, I figured out, you know what? I can quote verses of Scripture. I know the lingo, but I didn't know Jesus. My life hadn't been transformed. And it was in as an adult, a grown-up, that I kind of said that baptism for me wasn't meaningful. It was probably meaningful for some other people, but for me, what resulted from it was not a transformed life. And so that was what I needed, a transformed life. And so I came to receive Christ, and repentance occurred, and my life began to be different. The primary concern of Hebrews is continuance in faith. That's making sure people have taken hold of grace and that God's grace is characterizing their life. So be sure you possess and practice what you profess. That's the simple message of Hebrews. Be sure that you uh, possess and practice what you profess. You say you're a believer, but are you a disciple? Is it clear that you're following Jesus? That's what it's trying to clarify. So we think about the idea here where it says, be careful that no root of bitterness spring up and by it many be defiled. In the midst of malformed discipleship, bitterness may grow to characterize people and it will be toxic for community. Bitterness is the outcome. We we think, what is it? What is bitterness? It's the outcome of immaturity and dealing with resentment and disappointment. That's what bitterness is. Bitterness is like, over and over again, we don't deal with resentment properly. We don't deal with disappointment properly. We don't resolve issues with people. We let them stay around there, and after a while, we get an old hard heart. It calcifies, and it becomes uh, difficult for God to use us and to speak to us. And it says, beware of a root of bitterness that grows up. And the problem with it, too, is it's a, it, it's, you don't keep it to yourself. It's a contagion. This is a great quote, I thought, from uh, J.C. Ryle. He says, if friends will not walk in the narrow way with us, we must not walk in the broad way to please them. Health is not infectious, but disease is. He says, if the people around you aren't doing the right thing, you do the right thing. You don't do what they're doing, and especially when it comes to being willing to not resolve difficult things with others. As much as it depends on us, the Bible says, that's our obligation. Disease is contagious. Diseased attitudes have a corrosive effect on everyone who comes in touch with them. That's why in my own life I want to be conscious of the fact that am I holding on to resentment? It's subtle. Subtle. If it was obvious, we wouldn't have a problem with it. All stuff like that. It's always subtle. I've told, you know, I've said before, I like to journal. I journal mainly because I, it gives me kind of a map in, in a way, but it helps me to process my emotions it helps me to know why do I feel funky like this sometimes like writing it down I'm like oh yeah that happened that negative exchange occurred between me and 
somebody else. And then it's like, I, you know, you may know that uh, better than me anyway. But resentment is subtle. And we hold on to this stuff and it's there and we don't think about it. But the Bible says what happens when we hold on to it is that it's, it grows and then you can't keep it to yourself. It infects other people around us because we didn't, we didn't uh, let God's grace in. And so the people around us are affected by our bitterness. Not good, obviously. That's why the pursuit of peace must be prioritized in our, in our relationships. Many spiritual communities and congregations have been destroyed because members failed to evolve into grown-up disciples. Let me say that again. Many spiritual communities have, and congregations have been destroyed because people failed to evolve into grown-up disciples. I've seen this many, many locations where it's like a, a person or several people, bitter, bitter, bitter. Never learned how to be a disciple in their connections to each other, and eventually the congregation was destroyed through it. But, of course, you know, the same thing is true in families and other places where we have relationships with people. So then the Bible goes on and it gives us an illustration here of Esau. And we see that grace hinges on personal surrender. Esau, you remember him in the Bible, Jacob and Esau, brothers, twins. Who's born first? Just barely Esau. Remember who? what happened? Esau comes out and it says he's covered in hair, hairy baby. This story is so fascinating. I mean, it's like this little, and he's red and hairy. And they call him Esau because that's what Esau means is like red and hairy. <laughs> he got named Esau. His brother Jacob is holding on to his ankle when they come out. What did they name Jacob? Jacob. And what does it mean? Supplanter. Uh, trickster. He wanted to take his brother's place. Guess what? He did take his brother's place. First thing, coming out of the womb, he's holding on to his brother's heel. They say, look at this little trickster. This little schemer, Jacob. But Esau appears in this passage as a warning. They say, don't be like Esau who for a morsel sold his birthright. He gave away something incredibly important to get something by comparison that was nothing. And, and, and the Bible says, this is what it means to come short of the grace of God. Don't be like Esau. Don't have the wrong set of, of values. Grace hinges on personal surrender. Esau was a slave to the immediate. In a foolish, impulsive moment, he sold his birthright to Jacob. He comes in having worked. He was a hunter. It says his dad, Isaac, loved Jacob because he was a man's man. But his mom, uh, Rebecca, loved uh, Jake, or he loved Esau because Esau was a man's man, and the mother loved Jacob because he dwelled in tents. He was a mama's boy. That's what you have, a man's man, a mama's boy. And the mom dotes on Jacob. But underneath all of this is the sovereign plan of God, God working out his stuff sovereignly. And Esau comes in hungry, famished, and he tells Jacob, give me some of that hearty broth that you made. 
And Jacob, being the schemer that he is, says, I'll give it to you, but I want your birthright in exchange. And Esau says, what good is a bloody birthright to me? I am starving. Well, the birthright only meant that he got twice as much of the inheritance as his brother got, but it also indicated that he was the spiritual heir, and all that God had promised to do was bless the whole world through their family. So he just is like, that's not important. It's not important to me to be the heir of God's promises. I am hungry, he says. And so he just gives it away. He gives away his birthright. And, of course, it took another trick for that to become uh, real in their family system when Esau and Jacob, his father advanced in years and uh, aware that his time is short, calls in Esau and tells him, hey, I'm going to impart a blessing to you. Go make me this hearty uh, uh, stew that you make and then bring it back to me and I'm going to bless you. And in the meantime, the mom and Jacob scheme out a plan, and Jacob comes in covered with animals. We, we know this story, right? He covers his arms so that he feels like his, his uh, brother. He said, well, it feels like um, Esau, but it smells like Jacob somehow. <laughs> and he, he gives the blessing to the, wrong, to the wrong, quote, son. Jacob gets the blessing, not Esau, not the oldest Jacob. And his mom is involved and complicit in a plot, but so is God, as it turns out. Because God did not want Esau, who was ungodly, to be the person through whom his promises were going to come to an end. It wasn't that they were going to happen. They were going to end. He was the weak link. He was the end of God's promises. And so God in his sovereignty worked it out. So we think about Jacob. Jacob goes off to live with his uh, uncle Laban, who was ten times craftier than Jacob. These stories, when you read them, are incredible. He he puts Jacob in a situation where he's working for uh, his, his wife, he presumes, and his uncle tricks him into marrying the wrong daughter, so Rachel and Leah, and then all the the different things that happen over decades until finally Jacob himself has a confrontation where he becomes a possessor of his own faith. You, if you follow, I can't get into every bit of it, but I, I encourage you to go back and read it again and remind yourself about the narrative. Because what happens is that God, uh, he, has, he wrestles with God at the River Jabbok. You remember this? That an angel shows up and he wrestles all night and he leaves how? with a limp in his hip. He dislocates his thigh. And that's how he won. He wrestled with God and he wins. The Bible says, how did he win? He he won by being weakened and recognizing that he was not God. And he stopped being a kind of person that was always making deals with God. That's what Jacob was. Jacob was the if-then kind of relationship with God. If you do this, then okay, I'll follow through this way. He He basically had the foxhole kind of, of faith right where it's okay it's working but when I'm out of this foxhole you know it may not be the same thing but then out here eventually what happens to Jacob is it stopped being a foxhole faith and it started being a personal faith and he became a person that God could use and he had a real relationship with God but not his brother Esau Esau never became that kind of person in fact he was what I would call a worldling a worldling 
and meaning that his passions, his interests belonged to the world, not to God. He didn't care about God at all. He, was, he cared about the world. He was a worldling, not someone that God was going to use in the fulfillment of his, his promises. He was superficial even in expressing remorse. It says in the Bible here that he, uh, uh, when he found out that he had really blown it, that he expressed remorse and he, he sought uh, repentance bitterly with tears is the way it puts it. But it, it, we, we should think about it as like crocodile tears. You know, sometimes it's like, I'm not sorry. I'm just sorry that I didn't get what I wanted. And that's, I think, what we can see about Esau is he wasn't sorry. He was sorry that he didn't get what he wanted. He was unfit to forward God's agenda for Israel. And God, it says in Romans, God loved Jacob and what? Hated Esau. That's what it says. God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. I think the way we should think about that is that God displaced Esau. He saw that his purposes in bringing a Messiah would be uh, would not be accomplished through Esau. He was unfit. So in his sovereignty, God protected his plan to bring us the Messiah. Esau was dis- disruptive. He was immoral. That's why it says no profane or immoral person like. Don't be like that, like Esau. He was immoral and out of step with God's holiness. He was unconcerned with God's order for his relationships. He was a poster boy for spiritual discontinuity. He saw that his uh, marrying uh, Canaanite women displeased his parents, and he's like, you know what, I've got two wives. I'm going to go get two more. They hate it so much, I'm going to do even more of it. That's the kind of person that he was. And he shows us that devaluing God's inheritance may lead to irreparable loss. That's the point this passage is making. That's what we should listen to. Is that the Bible is saying devaluing God's uh, incredible gift of grace can lead in a person's life to irreparable harm. You don't get a do-over. I'm not saying that in this life. I'm saying in this life. If a person does not come to the place of properly understanding how important the gift that God has given to us in Jesus is, there is no hope beyond that. So it's unwise to push the details here and uh, look at it differently than that or to think, you know, what if I repent earnestly with tears? Is God going to say, you know, I don't, re- I don't accept that? No, that's not what it's saying. It's in the context of grace and the idea of receiving God's good gift. Don't trivialize his tremendous gift in Christ. Don't believe in ways that create distortion in your ability to see God. Esau didn't see God. He, wasn't a, he was irreligious. Don't behave with others in a way that devalues them. We see that in this passage. Why? Because it casts suspicion on your own confession of Christ. If we're people who can always go around hurting and breaking others and never caring, never owning it, there is something wrong in our spiritual life. That's what we see. The Bible says, be kind toward one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Just as God in Christ forgave you. We think about that. How can I hold on to things? You don't know what they did to me. 
No, but we know what we did to God, I've heard people say. We know what we did to God. What did God do for us? He just died for us. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The goodness of God that has come to us in Jesus is incredibly valuable. We must take special care that nothing interferes with ours and others' capacity to receive and experience it. That's what this passage is teaching. Some behavior is corrosive to grace, and we're responsible to live so that the grace of God, which has come to us in Christ, is evident in us, especially when our weak human impulse is to nurse resentments and lash out and defend ourselves. Part of holiness in relationships is learning that there are only broken people to love. Have you figured that out yet? That when you look around in your pool of friends... There's nobody perfect in it. Nobody. Look in the mirror, though. What do you find there? Perfect person? Probably not. Definitely not. Is anyone spiritually healthy completely? No, not even you. Do we want that? Yes, we already said that. That's the pursuit of our life is holiness. But the people that, that, that are out there in the pool of people to love and to care for are just people like us that are in process. They're only people for, the only people that are out there to love are people for whom Christ died. We think about that. We look around at the people that, are, you know, that really get under our skin or that are difficult for us to love. Those also are people for whom Christ died. There are only people made in God's image. There are no other kind of people. Even the most difficult person that you know, that person also is made in God's image and created to know God, whether they choose to or not. And yet we're his representatives. There are only people for whom God purposes redemption. There's no other kind of person. There are only people who will regularly need grace and forgiveness. All of the people in your network of people are people who regularly need forgiveness and grace. Just like you, just like me. That's who we know. All the people that you know will test the daylights out of you sometimes and bother you so much sometimes. It's a good thing you never test anybody else, right? It's only them bothering you. No, God's grace is especially made for our broken places, and that's why Jesus came. He came to bring us forgiveness, to forgive our sins, and to set us on a path of wholeness through holiness and to heal us and to give us hope. That's why Jesus came. And so the scripture here when it talks about grace is showing us that what it does for us, in us, is to create a kind of person that the world, when they look at us, they can see God. They see that God is affecting us. God is making a difference in us. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to have a time of commitment this morning. And typically we would say, if there is a way that you need prayer, I would certainly pray for you or one of our elders. Grab them, bring them up here, and, and uh, let them pray with you this morning. But the, there, I always think, too, about public invitations. There's stuff you can't take care of uh, here now. There's some things you could if you if you need to make a public profession of your faith in Christ and uh, follow him in baptism, you certainly could do that now.
But there are other things that, as we've taught today, you can't do it in this room. You have to do it when you go home, right? There are things that maybe God has brought to mind to you about your relationships that, that it, when you leave, that's when your discipleship kicks in and you begin to flesh this out in the way that God is uh, calling you to do. Stand with me. We're going to have a prayer. And I'm going to see encourage you as uh, the Spirit of God is speaking and moving in your life for you to be obedient. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the grace that's come to us in Christ. God, thank you for even examples of people who denied uh, your grace and who uh, left, left it off. Because we can see that's not what we want. God, we don't want to be people who reject your goodness. So I pray that you help us and especially help us with the people that we, you, we're called to love. And uh, help us, God, to be just like you with others. And we pray it in Jesus' name.